0: Hi, welcome back to the Rebel Mama Hotline, everyone. We're pretty stoked for a second episode in partnership with Women's Health Collective Canada. As you may have seen online, we have been focusing this month on raising awareness on the gap in women's health research and the legacy
1: of inequity in healthcare. That's right. And today we'll be discussing pregnancy and mental health with special guest Dr. Simone Vigod. Dr. Vigod is a leading expert in perinatal mood disorders and has conducted some of the largest studies worldwide on maternal mental illness around the time of pregnancy.
0: Mental illness at this life stage poses unique risks to mothers and their children at a critical juncture in both of their lives. Dr. Vigod's research is helping raise awareness about the gaps in access to specialized perinatal mental health care, as well as identifying vulnerable populations where these gaps are most prominent.
1: This is such important work. Dr. Vigod, we are so grateful that you've taken the time to join us
2: today. Welcome to the Rebel Mama Hotline. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad and honored to be here.
1: The pleasure is all ours. So
0: maternity and mental health, it's such a huge area to tackle in one episode, but we've pooled all our community questions and concerns to really get to the bottom of it all. And get all you mamas out there the info and resources you need to
1: navigate the wild
0: ride that is early
1: motherhood. Exactly. So Dr. Vigod, I was thinking that we should start by clarifying the definitions of a few important terms in your area of study. Mostly prenatal, postpartum, antenatal, perinatal, like they all sound (laughs) the same to us and they can be confusing to a lot of people. So...
2: Maybe you could break these definitions down for us. Absolutely. So uh, when I when I talk about this work, I like to use the term around the time of pregnancy because I think when we're thinking about mental health issues around the time of pregnancy, it doesn't start when somebody conceives, right? It starts even mm-hmm. before that when someone's preconception and they're thinking about it. And we also know that probably about uh, at least a third of pregnancies are unplanned. So I like to break it down and say, okay, first let's think about preconception, which really might be anyone of reproductive age. So if you have a mental health issue when you're thinking about becoming pregnant or even at reproductive age, I, I do think we always want to be thinking about, you know, what what might that mean in terms of a pregnancy? And really the best way that we can make sure that someone is well during their pregnancy or afterward is if they're going through something beforehand to try and optimize the treatment that they're getting for that beforehand. So I think that the first there's that preconception phase Mm -hmm. um, that we have to think about. That makes so much sense.
0: I know it's so important. And I don't think anybody talks about it. Like we've never really talked about Well, it. you know, I yeah. mean if
2: if you if you went to your doctor and you had diabetes and you were starting to think about having a baby, you'd probably have a conversation about, okay, mm-hmm. so how can we manage your blood sugar well right. so that the pregnancy can go well. Right. So, I think it, it is quite important. It's one of the things that we want to normalize that actually, you know, if you have a chronic problem like a mental health problem, you want to optimize it before you even before you even get pregnant because the biggest risk factor for having a mental health issue and pregnancy and postpartum is actually having a prior untreated or poorly treated or untreated right. mental health issue. Awesome. Um, but then we get into um, the time of pregnancy, and you're right; there are so many words mm-hmm. for it. Right, so There's- many, and they kind of sound similar. <laughs> yeah, so I like, know. wait, is it like <laughs> they're all natal? <laughs>
1: They're all, They're all natal. natal.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, it, it's used more in the UK when people say antenatal and postnatal, ante being natal being the birth and then anti being prior to the birth and post being after the birth. Right. Um, I think in North America, we're more likely to hear pregnancy and postpartum. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but antenatal would be during the pregnancy and then postnatal or postpartum would be after the pregnancy. Now, there's a whole thing about when does postnatal end? Because I guess after 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 you give birth, you're you're kind of postnatal forever, forever, um, you know. But and and in some of the uh, psychiatry textbooks, um, they talk about um, with perinatal onset, perinatal being or peri being around the mm-hmm. time of. Um, they talk about with perinatal onset being during the pregnancy or within the first four weeks postpartum. Um, Mm -hmm. But what we know about mental health issues around the time of pregnancy is that There are many reasons why someone can struggle in the postpartum. And, you know, while there's probably a a biological connection, you know, when when you go from pregnancy to delivery, during pregnancy, your hormones go up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but there's a huge fluctuation when you give birth. And there, Mm -hmm. you know, there are definitely biologically, some women's brains are pretty sensitive to that major, major fluctuation. So there probably is something biological about people who get more early onset, Um, suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, mental health issues. But of course, then there's all the other pieces like lack of sleep, transitioning, conflict with partner, having to be a parent for a first time and all the stresses. And so that doesn't just onset in the first month postpartum, that goes, that continues. And so, you know, we see a lot of women in our clinic who, who maybe they they feel a little bit of something in the early postpartum, but it progresses and progresses over time. And so, um, you know, most experts like to consider the postpartum period up or post period up until about a year postpartum. Mm-hmm. And the only reason to make an artificial distinction at that point is because when we're thinking about treatment, you know, we're thinking about in that first year, we're thinking about a lot of the infancy stage where maybe thinking about medications and breastfeeding, um, you know, in many places in the world, that's the time when people have parental leave and then things shift in terms of what people need after that, but it is, the one year is a bit of an artificial uh, distinction. Okay. That's fair. Or
0: as we call it, the dark ages. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was like our dark time because there's so much happening. Your hormones plummet after you're trying to be this perfect mom. You have no idea what you're doing. You're having whisper arguments with your, with your partner. Um, your kid's not sleeping. It's just, you're learning how to breastfeed. I, I remember thinking that breastfeeding was just going to be like, very natural and normal for me and it was a struggle so you don't anticipate all these things and it's a lot it's a lot of pressure for sure yeah okay so our next question what would you say has been the biggest breakthrough in women's mood disorder research in the last five years
2: last five years you know i think in a certain respect it's awareness the fact that we are having this conversation, the fact mm-hmm. that we're we're having the conversation that women um, are not just small men, right? That we're that, <laughs> yes, oh that, that there <laughs> that it actually makes sense to look at sex differences, so differences between like biologically male and female, even the way people metabolize medications. That it makes sense to look at differences between genders, and also they're not including only men and women, but people who are non-binary, right? Um, Thinking about trans individuals and and really starting to understand um, that we need to look at women and sex and gender and people in all their diversity around this time. There's just been such a huge explosion uh, of awareness. Um, And, you know, to, to see that just this week, you know, the new liberal government put out a a mandate letter of what they think the health ministers should work on and ensuring access to care for perinatal mental health is one of those things and that's pretty amazing and so that's great. now now that there's so much attention toward it i think that's really the breakthrough yeah and hopefully that leads to funding
1: and more research because i just i can't believe how small the funding is for women's specific health issues it's actually floored me to find that out through the whcc that it's like what is it eight eight percent of yeah federal funding federal. goes to women so women's specific health
0: research it just and yeah. it seems it seems like common sense that you would research that the research would be different for for women versus men but it's, and it seems so overdue that we're like still at this point in 2021 just getting here with the awareness doesn't it like even the stats we read that women only started being included in research in the 1990s. Like, that sounds insane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, you know, um, at the time of the thalidomide tragedy when there was thalidomide and then babies were, you know, were born with malformations was such a tragedy. But it it had a real impact on research because it sort of became, okay, wait a minute, you know, it's it, we can't include women of reproductive age uh, or pregnant women in research and that went on for a long time as you say it was not until 1993 that the Federal Drug Administration in the US said we we have to include women in clinical trials. And then, you know, and then even more importantly, we can't just lump everybody together and and we have to disaggregate. And we are getting somewhere with just a little bit of funding. As you may have heard, there's a new drug that is specifically being looked at for postpartum depression that specifically targets some of the, um, related to the neurotransmitter systems and hormonal systems that are, you know, that get wonky around the time of childbirth. Um, We're doing a a clinical trial to look at a non-medication treatment for people who are depressed while they're pregnant, and it's uh, to locally do uh, brain stimulation that they can they don't have to take medications if they have severe depression. And now we're getting funded to do these things and we're making progress. So it's amazing.
1: Amazing. Yeah, there's a CAMH billboard right beside my house that I drive by every day that's like a supplement that could prevent postpartum mood disorders. Find out more. I'm like, what? Is that actually a thing? There's like a (laughs) supplement that they're proposing that could actually do that. Have you heard anything about this from
2: CAMH? I am uh, involved in that project. I mean, the stage stage that it's at right now, right now is looking at is there a supplement that can impact um, some of those changes that I was talking about hormonally so right now it's in the stage of you know can it um can it stave off the baby blues like can it actually you know which most people get right yeah. and that you get kind of emotional and it's thought to be related to the fact that your hormone shifts and then that has impact on some of the neurotransmitter systems. And so if you can give this supplement to stabilize the neurotransmitter systems, will that actually stave off, you know, the emotional impact? Um, Right now, it's in the stage of can that prevent the baby blues? And if it does, you know, then in future, could that actually prevent uh, a mood disorder? You know, we don't, we don't know that yet. But again, I mean, that's why it's so important to, you know, to To look at research in this field and to look specifically.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. This is amazing. Where was this eight years ago when we had babies? Jesus.
2: (laughs) It's okay. We
1: can do it for the future, ladies. I'm all those down, of course. Okay. So then how do anxiety and depression during pregnancy affect the postpartum and early childhood outcomes of moms and their babies then? Like how does this research impact people? in real life.
2: Yeah, I mean this is this this is the key question, right? Because um, if that didn't impact anybody, then we wouldn't be worrying about how to treat it. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so untreated or undertreated depression or anxiety during a pregnancy that has pretty significant impact on the pregnant person's well-being and quality of life, it's also the biggest risk factor for a postpartum mental health issue. So, you know, feeling unwell in pregnancy, it doesn't automatically go away when you deliver. Um, you are going to, you know, then you're sleep deprived and all the other things, right? It's it's, it's probably going to going to get worse. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, there's been quite a bit of, of evidence to suggest that when Uh, a new parent is quite depressed or quite anxious, that can have impact on their relationship with the baby, and that can have impact on the baby's development in the long term. We do think also during the pregnancy, um, there are probably both direct and indirect ways that um, untreated or undertreated depression, anxiety could impact uh, the developing child. So if you are really unwell, and untreated, you might not be sleeping well, you might not be eating well, you might uh, start smoking again, you might, you know, you might turn to alcohol to self-medicate, right? So those would be kind of the indirect impacts that would then, you know, something like smoking is is pr- highly associated with preterm birth, and then, you know, problems with the child, or if you're not eating well, not sleeping well, all of those things. There probably is also a direct impact of untreated or undertreated depression or anxiety probably mediated through the stress hormone systems and that's why we think that we see um, babies who are born a little bit more preterm uh, a little bit smaller which are kind of markers of yeah. have, of potential problems across the lifespan and then that that um, infants can be harder to soothe right again yeah. and then of course it's so tied in Um, To what happens postpartum, that it's hard to separate what happened in pregnancy or or early postpartum, you know, with the longer term development. But you know, there are a lot of good reasons to treat, and given how common this is, so we think mental health issues affect probably up to ten percent of of people while they're pregnant, and so there are about four hundred thousand births in Canada every year. So that's saying like forty thousand. Wow. pregnancies, you know, parents and children every single year. Yeah. So if we even make a small dent in in our treatment, we're going to have a huge impact across generations, really.
1: Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing wow. work that you're doing. This is like, I know. It's, our minds it's, are blown right now.
0: I know. I'm so fascinated. I feel like we could just talk to you forever about this. There's just, there's so much to consider when you're entering early motherhood. So- thank you again for all of this insightful information um you know at the end of the day what we always like to say to new moms is you must prioritize your well-being to get through this in one piece so yes let's put all of this up to the forefront on that note we're going to take a short little break for a word from our sponsors
1: This episode was created in partnership with the Women's Health Collective Canada, a strategic alliance founded by three of the country's leading women's health and hospital foundations, BC Women's Health Foundation, Alberta Women's Health Foundation, and Women's College Hospital Foundation. Women's Health Collective Canada funds groundbreaking research and is leading a call for public support for more research and awareness of the health issues affecting women. Find out more at www.whcc.ca or on Instagram at whccanada.
0: And we're back. Thank you, Dr. Simone Vigod, for joining us on today's episode where we're discussing maternity and mental health. Our next question for you is, in your opinion, what are the most promising treatments for antenatal mood disorders being proposed at the moment?
2: Well, so for (laughs) antenatal mood disorders, so... um for depression during pregnancy. And yes, I know. I was like having a hard time with the word. So depression <laughs> in pregnancy during pregnancy. Uh, as we say in North America, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a little bit biased because there are a lot of different kinds of healthcare providers that help to provide treatment, right? From social workers, psychotherapists, psychologists. And as a psychiatrist, I've always been kind of more focused in my research on, you know, what we know that therapy works. Right. right. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the research and therapy right now for pregnant people is how do we make it accessible? How do we make it acceptable? How do we make it affordable? Right. Yes. Um, and we know that but we know that it works. So can we do it virtually? Can we do it on the phone? And, and that's all really exciting. And all the everything is pointing to the fact that you can do therapy on the phone. You can do it by video, you know, maybe there are going to be some things that work better for some people and not others, but therapy is really effective. Um, but as a psychiatrist, I'm the one that people come to often when therapy hasn't been enough, or when therapy, um, you know, when when either somebody can't, can't take time off work to do it, or they've tried it, and they're still not better, or they're really, really unwell, and they may be too unwell even to really engage in therapy. And so, up until more recently, the only real options we had were medications. Um, and you know, while you can never say that a medication in pregnancy is zero risk, the medication, most of the medications that we have to treat depression in pregnancy are reasonably low risk. But they do cross the placenta. They, you know, they get to the baby, and a lot of people who are pregnant are really, really worried about that. So then we're left in this situation where we know that many people will not take treatment. And then everything that I was saying before about, but if we don't treat them, that's not good either. Right. And so um, a few years ago, uh, started collaborating with um, some of the researchers who were working on these new non-invasive brain stimulation treatments. So these are things like um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation, where people can come in for a treatment. You know, they sit there, they're awake, you know, and then their their brain gets locally stimulated in the areas involved in depression. That is so cool. Uh, wow. really well. That's
1: so are yeah. we talking like the sticky things that would be on like an ECG kind of thing stuck to your head and then wires connected to that? That's what I'm picturing.
2: So- um, <laughs> Yes and no. They're very fancy now. Like at this point, so the the trial that we're doing now, um, it's an at home stimulator. Wow. Um, you know, in the trial that we're doing, you know, they're they're more expensive because we have to program them to compare. You know, either the active one to a pretend or a sham the one. Seatbelt, yeah. But you can, but you can there, you can buy the machines. They're they're very portable, and you basically just put on like a some straps, and it puts the. The pads in the right area, um, you know, on your on your head, and does a local stimulation. So the way that people use light boxes, for example, like you can right. buy them, you take them home, right? This would be the same idea, um, which is, you know, can we can this work for depression, and can we then, you know, do we then have another option so that for people for whom psychotherapy isn't going to be an enough treatment, you know. Mm-hmm. Do we have something else to offer for the people who really um, don't feel comfortable uh, taking medication, right? And so we're doing. We did a pilot trial um, in at Women's College Hospital and a couple of years ago, where we um, we also we brought the women in to the hospital and we also monitored their babies. Um, Mm. in utero, because we wanted to show that it was really, really localized. And I mean, these treatments have been around for years and years. They've even had brain scans that show it only affects that part of the brain. It doesn't affect people's heart rate or body temperature, but no one had ever done it in pregnancy. So we were able to monitor our, our research participants during the pregnancy, again, to show that it's really, really localized. And so the Canadian Institutes for Health Research has now funded us to do an at-home trial so that we can enroll uh, people who have, you know, moderate to severe depressive symptoms in pregnancy, really feel uncomfortable about the idea of, of starting a medication um, mm-hmm. and do this trial instead. And in the pilot, it really suggested that, you know, that not only did people improve, you, you do it every day for three weeks during weekdays. And when we do it at home with them, you know, we're, we're on the line with them. We do video you know, so we can watch them, help them, you know, get it set up. And then we give them a code and they they do it. But so after the first three weeks of treatment, you know, uh, women who had the active one were doing quite well. And what was amazing was that postpartum, after the birth, about at a month postpartum, three quarters of the women who'd had the real treatment were doing well compared to only... um, 12% Twelve percent of the women who'd had the sham. So if we can not if if what this means is that we can not only treat the depression in pregnancy, we can actually stave off um, people relapsing or remaining ill postpartum. That's going to be huge. So we're starting that. That is trial huge. Now. That's life altering. Yeah, to me, that's, to me. This is, this is the really exciting part of doing research and just this idea that we can potentially have another option to offer people. So if we have more people accepting treatments, more people getting better, you know, and then we're off to the races. Amazing. Something that you can just put on your head seems like
1: really the obvious option. And of course, psychotherapy, right? As you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. So with both of those things, with psychotherapy and this new technology, I know a big part of your work is in equity and accessibility. So what can be done to make sure this kind of mental health care is accessible to all moms? Can you talk to us about some of the inequities you've found in your research based on race or other
2: socioeconomic factors and just how are we going to close that gap? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we have to take a step back and and even start with the way that we are the way that we even talk about perinatal mental health and really understand you know are there certain communities where we need to talk about mental health in a different way, right? In order to have people accept the idea that, you know what, I I have something that's real, that's treatable, that I can actually feel better Mm -hmm. about, right? So there's there's that piece, because we know some of the population level data that I did a number of years ago, found, for example, that women who uh, were not born in Canada, who we know from surveys are actually often quite at high risk of developing postpartum depression and anxiety, we're the least likely to go in and see a doctor for Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be really thinking about, um, you know, the, our foundation has an expression that they talk about centering on the margins that when we do things and when we design new strategies, we actually shouldn't be thinking about designing for the masses. We should be, we should be centering ourselves around like, who's the least likely to to be using this, and how do we make sure that they're going to be included uh, right. in what we're doing? I mean,
1: I think that's fascinating, but how do you put that into practice? How do you get to those? Because are, they are difficult people to reach in the population—people who recently immigrated here. Maybe there's a language barrier. Like, do you just make things? How do you make things more? How do you accessible? make it happen? But
2: yeah, how do you yeah, make I, it happen? A lot of it's about partnerships, right? Yeah. Because a lot of it's about trust, right? right? So it's about partnerships with with communities and with stakeholders, and and having people who are trusted within communities, um, right. you know, being the ones who help gather the feedback um, about what would make most sense. So you know, I've started with really all of my projects now thinking about how do we gather you know, a a diversity stakeholder group, so that even as we're starting to design interventions, we're talking to communities. And, you know, sometimes what it might mean is that you sometimes it might mean translations, sometimes it might mean, you know, um, finding different kinds of resources, and sometimes it might mean actually having to have separate, you know, adaptations of different resources, but it really is, you know, taking a step back and saying, how can we make sure that all our information mm-hmm. is inclusive from the very beginning. Yeah. And and how do we how do we partner with communities? For example, not everyone is going to feel comfortable walking into downtown hospital and walking up to the, the department yeah, of exactly. psychiatry, right? Yeah. And so and so how do we instead say, okay, so then you shouldn't have to. Yeah, like let's 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 find a way to embed the the same services and education, you know, at at the community center or at the community health center, where yes. like where you do feel comfortable. Yeah, and I guess online
1: access too. But then there's the barrier of like not everybody has access to the technology, unless I guess people can go to the library and access things there. But
2: Well, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think digital is really, really important because it is allowing people to, from, you know, who live in areas that are not close to specialty care to get care for people who maybe have to work and, you know, they can take 45 minutes on their lunch by, you know, kind of walking down the street, but there's no way they could take three hours to come and go to an appointment, you know, especially perinatal period. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't know when your baby's going to sleep and you've to imagine like, Canadian winter, even if you live down the street from your services, it's hard. Yes. Um, That being said, there's certainly a digital divide. And, you know, there are people who don't have a private, they might have internet, but they don't have a private place in their home. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's interpersonal violence. So I think it's, again, so important for us to be thinking about a multi-pronged approach, right? That we have to think about for whom is virtual care the right thing? And for whom is it better to be figuring out how to get them the in-person care that they need? You know, one of the things we learned was that um, creating interventions that are asynchronous can sometimes work really well. So we, we did a trial of this one therapy where we have, it's a web platform and people can log in. It's for postpartum depression and anxiety, but people can log in 24-7 and the therapists, you know, can go go in they go in periodically and therapists moderate it. Mm. And, um, we tried to do a live chat hour of it. And the feedback we got was that people didn't want it because then they felt pressured. They had to be somewhere at a certain time. Right. right? And so people actually really like the asynchronous, but then there are some people who want a live group, right? Right. So not everything, it's not, you know, not everything's going to work for everybody. And I think that's why we have to have so, we have to have all these different approaches so that we can be inclusive. I mean, I love that the
0: focus is on accessibility and, you know, getting that care to the people that need it and how do they need it and how are they going to respond to it? And speaking of the digital space, um, we wanted to talk to you about the role of social media. Like, how does it play into this? What do you what would you personally like to see change in the online experience for moms?
2: Oh, that is that's that's
0: loaded. Just the mil-
2: it's just the million dollar question. I mean, I think you know. I mean, I think there's a bit of a U shaped curve with social media, right? Because especially in the pandemic, you know, with um, isolation, some is probably good, right? right? And and some interaction. And there are some great posts on social media that are quite real, you know, that don't make as you were saying at the very beginning. You think you have to be perfect. You think breastfeeding should just be easy, right? But then there's also a lot of that, like, you know, you're looking at people's posts and it looks like it's easy for everybody else, right? Right. Um, Or and then there's a lot. The other thing that happens on social media is judgment, right? Like, oh, no, I I fed my baby um, food that I maybe bought from the store and I didn't make myself. And then someone says something and then parents are already feeling so judged, right? So there's kind of this U-shape where probably a little is probably good for interaction, Right. But then if it's too much, it can start to really grate on you. I mean, in in the days before social media, like you might feel that way if you maybe went to a baby group and you were there for an hour. But now you have potentially have access to kind of feeling criticized (laughs) 24-7, like all day. Right. And, you know, I try to remind my patients that we you know, there was a, a pediatrician in the early 20th century, Donald Winnicott, who talked about the concept of good enough mother. And we talk about good enough parent now. Yes. but that actually our goal should not be to be perfect our goal should be to mess up sometimes and still feel like we're worthwhile people cuz then we teach our children that they can do the same yes. right but i think social media just sometimes doesn't do that
0: right? yeah and i mean the the good news is the trend towards like honest motherhood and storytelling is a yeah. big thing now and like when we landed on the scene Like to give you context, we had our kids in 2014. And the reason why the rebel mama was born in the first place was because we couldn't find that community online. We joined all these mommy groups and it was terrible. Like these women were just tearing each other down. There was a lot of judgment. Um, We couldn't kind of find a place that we needed where we felt safe. So we created our own and our focus was just on that, like the raw experience of it, sharing these stories so that other moms didn't feel alone. And knew it was normal to feel like you can you can love your kids very much, and at the same time not love being a mom some days, and that's perfectly fine, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. it's 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 really amazing. I think I think the other thing that hap- can happen with social media is though. Um, you know, we were talking a bit about medications in pregnancy and like starting to research treatments, and you know, there it's it can be really hard sometimes to discern, you know, what is. What what's a fair recommendation and what's not? Yeah. So I think sometimes that's the other piece. So you can get down a bit of a rabbit hole. For uh, sure. With that, so it's so important, you know, like groups and initiatives like yours. I think people look to them a lot to say, you know, okay, where is a a reputable place I can go? Yeah, absolutely right. What's your source?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and we talk a lot about you know, letting the algorithm work for you and really curating your online experience. Because, you know, once you find an account or a person who you resonate with and who is speaking about motherhood in a way that makes you feel good about yourself rather than feel terrible about yourself or you feel seen or whatever, there's things that you can do to get more posts like that in your feed and less of what you don't want in your feed, so like interacting, following things, muting certain accounts, like really curating your online experience because I feel like some people who are not so tech-savvy feel like whatever they're being served, they need to eat, Mm -hmm. you know, but realistically you can decide, you can choose to never see something from a certain person ever again and you don't even have to actually unfollow that person, you can just mute them and they will never know that you've done this, right? (laughs) So there's definitely things that people can do to take control of their social media experience a bit more. But I mean, of course, we would like to see a whole online world where everything is just
2: Yeah. A lot more it's
1: getting there. It's getting there slowly. And it's, it's and
0: vain. it's it's good for those that are isolated sometimes too and 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 they need that online community. Our private forum is like that. It's like ten thousand women strong, but so a lot of those women don't have like they're in far away places and they're cooped up in their houses alone and they don't have that kind of, you know, we're very lucky because we're in a big city and there's lots of people around. We have a really tight knit community, but a lot a lot of new moms look to the digital space for like to find their people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just hard if you're if you're depressed already or mm-hmm. if you're really anxious already, the problem is that then when something negative comes, it's really hard to selectively turn your attention away from that.
1: Totally. Right? Totally. So we that was going to be our last question, but now I have I'm curious as to how because people are home and like, how has the pandemic affected maternal mental health? I'm sure that it has not been good, but do you have any data on
2: what's happening right now? We do. So, um, you know, for all the reasons that we've mentioned, you know, around the time of pregnancy is already, you know, a higher risk time. And, um, And the the biggest protective factors uh, outside of treating your mental health issue in pregnancy, the biggest protective factors are social support and, you know, reduction of life stress. Great. (laughs) It's not the right vibe for
0: 2020 and
2: 2021. You know, so, you know, and so what happened, especially around the beginning of the pandemic, when, you know, there was also the anxiety around infections, there were a lot of people who, you know, not a lot of essential visitors got to go with. So people, were, you know, giving birth alone, like that was, that is already so tough, right? And, and, you know, public health nurses, for example, who might have come to the home, help you breastfeed, help you with various things, or, you know, or the peer support groups you could go to in your neighborhood, right? Like all of that was... Even kind of your parents
0: parent. couldn't and, you know, come help, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Right. I mean, we talk about what's the best treatment for a colicky baby is the grandparent treatment, oh. i.e., grandparent comes, takes baby, suckles baby <laughs> while you go rest, right? Yeah. Um, and so all of that was just disrupted. So, on top of all the other stresses people might have been having, that was huge. So a group out of Calgary at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, did a survey and found that about 50% of pregnant women or pregnant people who responded to the survey were reporting high levels of depressive and anxious symptoms, you know, whether they had a disorder or not, they, but they were highly psychologically distressed. And then we published some data in, for Ontario last year in June about the first year of the pandemic. And we showed a about a consistently 30% increase in Um, doctor visits for uh, perinatal, for postpartum depression, anxiety, um across the board and that's a huge increase 30 percent is huge yeah well (gasps) considering how many people are already affected right yes and there's
0: so many things to consider during a pandemic right like you're already worried about the virus and you can't do so many things and then you have this baby you probably have financial stress on top of it because it's affected so many jobs and stuff like it never ends right yeah
1: and that's oh, people man. who actually went to see doctors. It's a 30% increase in people who went, like took that's that right. next step to go yeah, to the doctor. Exactly. So how many people are at home still just feeling that way and not in the in a place to go and actually get themselves help?
2: Yeah. I mean, partly we wonder whether having converted so much to virtual that maybe we did get more people who who, <clears throat> you know, previously were suffering in silence because it was actually a bit easier and... Right. You know, they didn't have to walk into a hospital or a place. So, I mean, maybe, but I, I think it's pretty clear that at least some of that increase was new, you know, new difficulties. Yeah. And so, you know, we really have to think about that as as this drags on, right? Literally <laughs> yes, be dragging on. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I, think, I think that's why it is so exciting thinking about all these accessible ways to get treatment uh, to people right? Especially as we have more people needing treatment, we want to be efficient and, you know, effective and getting people better. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's podcasts like this that make it, you know, I hope somebody, you know, listens to this and that says, oh my goodness, you know, I saw su- like I suffered from that and actually there's help and there are treatments and I can yeah. get them. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's incredibly important. We see so much within our community and we know how, needed this research is and the fact that you're making it accessible to everybody is just the icing on the proverbial cake so thank you thank you thank you for everything that you've done and that you continue to do (laughs) and thanks for
0: taking the time to talk to us because we're like super excited to share this with our audience and our community everybody needs to to hear it
2: yes and can people find you like where can people find you on the internet <laughs> ah, I'm 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 on Twitter the most. So that would be at Simone Vigod at uh, first name last name uh, on Twitter. Okay, perfect. Um, probably the probably the best place.
1: Okay. And can is there anywhere people can go to find your
2: more recent studies or to see some of your work? Yes, absolutely. You can go to www.wchospital.ca and you can navigate to the research. Um, If you're interested in the uh, transcranial direct current stimulation study that we talked about, we also have an online patient decision tool to help people make decisions about antidepressants in pregnancy. So those would be available on there or pinned as pinned tweets in my Twitter account. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you.
0: All I have to say is thank God for medical researchers.
1: Oh, amen. I'm just so happy to see how much work is going into making mental health care as accessible as possible.
0: Yeah, they've got their work cut out for them in that respect for sure, but it's so encouraging to see how much equity is actually being prioritized.
1: Totally. Well, as Dr. Vigod mentioned, she's affiliated with Women's College Hospital so if you're so inclined, feel free to check out their website and get up to speed on all the women's specific medical research being done over there, right here in our hometown of Toronto. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's right. Make sure you
0: are subscribed to this podcast because next week we have another fascinating guest, Dr. Lori Brado, who is going to be speaking with us about women's sexual health research.
1: That's right. So we're going to be discussing desire. As well as Mm. busting a bunch of myths about women and libido. So you definitely don't want to miss this one.
0: No, definitely not. So stay tuned, mamas. We'll be back. Ciao for now.
1: See you next week. The song you're listening to is called Name and Number off the debut album Unrequited by Roshan. Stream it now on Apple Music.